Welcome to the Labyrinth. My guest today is Randall Stroud. He's a preacher, a paralegal, a martial artist, and an independent politician. He's also an author, and he has survived a near-death experience after getting shot in the head by a bullet. Randall, welcome to the Labyrinth. I'm happy to be here, and let's go through this maze or the Labyrinth together in this conversation. Sure, sure. So, Randall, why did you join politics? Wow. <laughs> Straight into it, huh? Well, I guess ever since I was a small child, I've always hated bullies because I was a late developer. I don't think I hit puberty until I was like 16 or 17. And I got picked on a lot for being short. But then my last year in you know, secondary education, I shot up and I was very angry because I was like, wow, finally, I'm a handsome guy, but now I'm leaving school. But, but growing up, I always hated bullies. And that's why I got into martial arts as well, because I don't like feeling like I'm a helpless person. I'm not the type of person that sits on the sidelines and just says, oh, someone should do something about that. I'm the kind of guy that says, someone should do something about that. Oh, wait a second. I'm someone. So I actually got into politics with that motivation. I had always been interested in perhaps running for some seat, but I was like, you know, maybe it's not the right time. Maybe I'll wait when I'm older, but it happened by chance or the universe set it into action. I don't know, but it happened by an accident because I went to this political meeting that a friend had invited me to because I had been involved in political activism years before, and I was kind of burnt out because I had organized protests. I had worked as a, an independent paralegal helping people, you know, fight and win certain cases, and it took a lot of energy out of me. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to hear about the legal system or politics for at least a couple of years. Just leave me alone. But a friend had invited me to this meeting called, um, what was the name of it? Uh, Americans for Liberty. I, I can't remember the, the, the name of the group now, but anyways, I went to this, um, this group and there was a bunch of lobbyists there and they were having a discussion about taxes, different issues. And they kept asking the audience, you know, what do you think? What's your input? And everyone was so shy and they had nothing to say. And I kept raising my hand was like, well, I think we should do this. I think we should do that. And then someone joked and said, you have all these ideas. Why don't you run for office? And I said, ah, no, no. But then a friend who the one who had, who had invited me, he said, listen, all you need is 50 signatures from registered voters to get on the ballot. Let's get you on the ballot just for the fun of it, just to say that you're on a ballot and maybe you can put it on a job application in the future. So I said, okay, deal. So we got on the ballot. A friend of mine, we knocked on doors and got signatures from voters, and I got on the ballot, and I was like, okay, this is cool. My name is there, but there's no way I'm going to win, but then like two weeks later, I started getting these phone calls from the Tennessean newspaper, USA Today, all these you know, different news outlets asking, my, asking me my opinions on certain issues, abortion, taxes, and I'm answering the questions, and they're publishing it. And then it dawned on me, okay, I guess this is serious now. I have to take this seriously and I'm running for a political seat. And that's kind of how it happened. 
that's very interesting it all happened uh, randomly i guess kind of randomly but i i truly believe that when you feel something in your heart whether it's positive or negative i think that we attract things into our life subconsciously and i had been thinking about it for years and i think that was just the universe kind of nudging me to have that experience so what are your political inclinations are you a conservative or a liberal or a libertarian <laughs> very good question very good question so i'm as you've noticed i'm not a guy that gives really quick short answers because as our mutual friend rafael samuel he has a famous quote where he says if it's a short answer then it's probably not the right answer because i'm a very nuanced person so growing up i was very liberal i've been all over the political spectrum my father was very conservative um i had a time where i was even an anarchist where i said i don't believe in any government let's just get rid of all of it i i just want to be free but now that i'm in my 30s and i've had all these different experiences politically at this point i would have to say that i from a social perspective or from a personal perspective i definitely lean more conservative but then when it comes to economic issues i would say i'm more of a moderate but to really sum it up i'm an issue by issue type person so if you ask me my position on taxes maybe i'll be more conservative but then you ask me my position on legalization of cannabis maybe i seem a lot more liberal so i i truly am a very nuanced person and a true independent by its namesake i don't really fall in in a box but if i were to paint myself with a broad stroke I would say that I'm a moderate or a centrist that leans slightly more conservative. That's very interesting. Even I think that labels are very outdated. You can't really label a person as right wing or left wing because individuals are right wing on certain issues and left wing on certain issues. So these labels and this dichotomy they're quite outdated. Um so tell me what is uh, Nalini Global? Hmm. So I'm assuming that you're from India, correct? Yes. So this word Nalini is uh significant to your yeah. culture. You know, Sanskrit. So growing up, I grew up in a very multicultural background and I have a lot of friends who are Cambodian uh and their dominant religion is Buddhism. And Buddhism as you know stems from its from its mother religion Hinduism. and growing up around buddhist i myself never became an actual buddhist but i have great respect for the buddha's wisdom and even hinduism uh the 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 lessons of ganesha all these kind of things i studied that quite a bit but there was something about the story of the lotus flower how the lotus flower is pretty much a metaphor for how we come to be to our highest selves you know like the lotus in order for it to grow into a flower It starts off as this very hard seed has a very hard outer shell and in order for it to become this very beautiful plant you have to throw it in the water and then it has to get buried in the mud and then somehow the shell has to be cracked and then this vine has to grow up through the water and then this lily pad comes up and if the lily pad doesn't get enough sunshine it dies if it gets too much it burns and it also dies 
So it has to get the, the right amount of sunshine and then it can blossom into this beautiful flower. And that was told to me by a Buddhist monk. And he said that that's a metaphor for reaching enlightenment, that you have to go through all these struggles to be born into this, into this higher thing. And I was like, wow, that's really beautiful. And at the time that I created Nalini Global, one of my Cambodian friends uh, had family back home in Cambodia. And we originally you know, wanted to raise money to sort of help some of the impoverished over there. But we had some disagreements about how the organization, what its mission was going to be. And my Cambodian partner sort of fell off. So I renamed it from just Nalini to Nalini Global. And it sort of morphed into this thing where I talked about international uh, politics, human rights. And I even wrote several shadow reports on government corruption. And I sent them out to different, uh, you know, United Nations connected organizations. And uh, I did some podcasts, wrote some articles, a lot of educational material about legal things, because I think the average person, I don't care what country it is, they don't know what their legal rights are. They don't know what their international human rights are. They don't know what their, their local laws are to protect them from government and law enforcement. And I create Nalini Global to be this sort of hub this educational hub to sort of give people um, a place to go to, to get themselves educated. And I put a lot of energy into it, but as financial burdens and other things came into my life, the website's still up, still lots of good information there, but I'm a lot less active. So for about two years, I was very heavy into it. And it was just sort of a, a little pet project that I had started to try to give back to humanity a little bit. Mm, interesting you seem like a very empathetic person was there is there a have you gone through a tough experience was there an event in your life that made you more empathetic well i would like to say yes i mean i have been through some pretty horrible and traumatic things which led me to this philosophy that i'll speak on later which i'm a huge advocate of it's called post-traumatic growth syndrome. So don't forget that. Let, let's go back to that topic later because it's very important. But as far as, is there a specific event that made me an empathetic person? I would say no, it's, it's something that's innate within me. And as far as I can remember since I was a child, my earliest remember, my earliest memory is my third birthday party as a child when I was three years old. And just from as far as I can remember, I can just, I can just feel that if I'm feeling something, this pain that I'm feeling, whether it's my toy that I'm playing with just broke or I burned my hand, if I'm feeling this pain, then surely everyone else must be feeling this too. And I don't know why, Maybe you can call me gifted, or maybe it's something to do with my genetics or something I inherited from my parents, or maybe it's just divinely God-given. I don't know, but um, yeah, empathy is something that I've had from a very early age, but I will say this last thing on this particular topic is empathy is not always a good thing. If you have too much of it, you can put other people so much before yourself that you can also lose yourself to other people and be taken advantage of. So 
there's been times in my life where I've had to scale it back. And sometimes I scaled it back too much and I had no empathy for people. And I was this tyrant, this jerk saying, get away from me. I don't care about anything. But those were, those were just learning periods, learning pains. And I think just like what the Buddha said, the middle path, I've had to go far left, far right. And I think at this point in my life, the needle is beginning to reach that center point. And it's a very beautiful place. Yeah, I think uh, empathy is important, but a balance of empathy is also important. Too much of it can put you in a disadvantage where others will take advantage of you. And earlier you said that um, when you were younger, you were more liberal, but as you grew older, you became a bit more conservative. I find this very common among men in every country, not just in US, but he, he, even here in India, even as a man, I can say this about myself too. When I was younger, I was quite liberal, left-leaning. I, I was a socialist, but as I grew older, I realized as I read more about economics and finance, I realized socialism is not uh, really the best way to go. And uh, I became more conservative and I also became more libertarian. I thought, okay, you know what? Government should not tax us too much. Taxation is almost like a theft. They should, they should let us make our own decisions with our money. Businesses should not have too many regulations and we should be allowed to run our own businesses in our own way as long as we're not harming someone else. Do you find it interesting that a lot of men and women become more conservative and go away from liberalism as they get older? I don't find it that surprising because Winston Churchill, he had a famous quote where he said, if you're not a liberal at 25, you have no heart. But if you're not a conservative at 45, you have no brain. And the motivation behind this is quite simple. And I'm not saying that being conservative doesn't have disadvantages, because it does. Even though I lean more conservative, I will admit that it does have some limitations. But it's natural to be liberal when you're younger, because you see things the way that they ought to be. But as you get older and you get out into the world, you realize that the world is not going to always bend to what you feel is right because the world's going to operate however it is, whether you like it or not. And you've just got to deal with it and you've got to operate within the rules of the matrix. And yes, sometimes through advocacy and, and technology and inventing and, and just experimenting, we can bend those rules, but sometimes nature is just nature and life is just life no matter how much it hurts me that there are people out there who kill and rape and murder i can i can sit back and be sad about that and say oh my heart i feel so deeply for humanity it's so sad or i can say you know what this is just a fact of reality that there there are murderers and rapers rapists and thieves, I can sit here and cry about it and demand that someone else fix it, or I can go learn martial arts. I can learn how to use a gun and defend myself and take action. So I believe that conservatives are more about preserving order and being more self-reliant, whereas liberals tend to be more emotionally weaker, and they sort of demand that society 
sort of fix the problem and they don't really look at their own sort of inner sphere quite as much they're more altrospective whereas conservatives i feel are more introspective in many ways hmm. why do you think america is so divided and polarized today easy easy and this is not going to be a popular answer some people are probably going to call me all kinds of names for saying this but the liberals in the united states are not the same liberals that we had in 1990 or 1980 or any any time before what it used to mean to be a liberal in 1990 was you're anti war and you want free healthcare from the government and maybe to be able to smoke marijuana but now to be liberal it it means so much more than that but going back to your question why is the united states so divided it's always been divided i mean we're the united states where we have 50 different states with different laws and even though liberals say diversity is our strength it's also our weakness because yes i love multiculturalism and diversity in many ways i can walk down the street and talk to my indian friend and i can go this way and talk to my chinese friend and then i can go back here and talk to my black friend there's so many different cultures living on all of the same street but because there's so many cultures because there's so many different ideas it's hard to have a consensus on anything if if we go back to the united states let's say in 1960 in 1960 arguably we had less rights in in the united states black and white people had to eat in separate restaurants they they couldn't even use the same restroom we arguably had less rights in 1960 but divorce rates were lower crime was much lower overall society was a lot more stable why is that because back then society was more conservative even though we had all these cultures living together and there was racism and and all these problems everyone still pretty much believed that there is some kind of higher power there's there's a higher god it's good to be uh, married it's good to be uh, socially conservative and say yes ma'am no ma'am we had this we had this baseline for society but now the modern day liberals they've come in and said there's 72 different genders and you know everything's racist um if you believe in god you're unscientific and and all these kind of things and i don't want to just blame the liberals because even the conservatives too they say that oh we are the party of god we believe in god and and we believe in morality but they have no problem invading iraq and afghanistan and you know taking their oil and doing these things so there's just so much hypocrisy that the united states has gotten so obsessed with my rights my rights you know what can i do that benefits me that we've gotten away from our sense of patriotism and duty and love of uh, family and the the recognition of a higher power that is above us and by denying that higher power we've become a nation of narcissists mm, i think people have chosen to worship themselves in the absence of god they choose to worship themselves now i am not a very religious person to be honest 
but i think it's i do understand the power of faith when i see an athlete uh, winning scoring a goal in a football match and doing a cross in his hand or when i see when i watch ufc and when i see someone like kabib saying inshallah after the match when he praises god i see a, i see and i acknowledge the power of faith even though i my faith in god is not very strong i acknowledge that and i also notice that when you get rid of one religion society generally replaces it with a new religion i consider wokeism in the united states as a religion too where the, you, where you can get ostracized for misgendering a person i consider scientism as a religion too where a lot of liberals today are worshiping dr anthony fauci even if he even though he we know now that he has funded experiments that have tortured puppies so i i view things like scientism and wokeism as a religion too and right now in the united states they thought a lot of atheist intellectuals thought once we get rid of religion we will be much more peaceful but that has been proven false i think we do need things like faith and community what do you think about this well i mean we could do an entire podcast just on this question but so me myself i grew up in a in a christian church and i don't even like to call myself christian anymore because modern day christianity itself has gotten so progressive you know we have progressive christianity now where the church is telling people hey it's okay if you if you get drunk or you know it it doesn't matter what you do as long as you ask god for forgiveness it's okay how is that holding anyone to any sort of standard so even our religion has gotten so loose and liberal that no one really takes it you know seriously if if you go to the middle east for example you don't see people getting drunk in the streets you you don't see people uh going viral on the internet for cussing out their parents or going to a grocery store and making a mockery of themselves that kind of attitude is is shunned now they have other problems i'm not saying that if someone steals something we should cut off their hand but perhaps we should recognize that that religion even if you don't believe in in religion if you consider yourself well i believe that there's a higher power but i don't subscribe to a particular religion that's fine that's still a great step in a good direction because by believing in some kind of a higher power you can no longer put yourself on this mantle where you say all concepts of morality come from me and my brain and if it doesn't match up with my brain then you're a racist you're a bigot you're this you're this you're that and i think the only way that we can reach a level of humbleness is to recognize that i don't know everything that there is something more vast beyond my understanding and that brings us down a few notches and something else i want to say this is a big problem that i have with atheists is that they don't want to give credit for the moral scaffolding or the moral sort of skeleton that sort of holds up society that society has been built off of because even though religion for all of its problems people have taken the scripture and they've they've translated it and they've and they've sort of contorted the words to mean something that it really doesn't so that they can push some kind of agenda that's a problem 
there's a lot of problems with religion. And again, we could do a whole podcast just on religion because I have a lot to say about it. But atheists need to give credit for what religion has achieved in society. And it is an apparatus or a vehicle to get to God. And for me personally, what matters to me most in religion is monotheism. Let, let me explain really quickly. So I actually left modern day Christianity just because I realized after reading in the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 10, where it says that repeated sins can get you out of the grace of Christ. I was like, wait a second, just believing in, in, in Christ doesn't give me a, a, a get out of jail free card. And I actually have to change my life or there's still a punishment. And I asked my pastor, I was like, well, what about this? And he said, well, we can't talk about that verse. And that told me everything that I needed to know is that modern day Christians, they use Jesus as this get, get out of jail free card where they can do whatever they want. Oh, I, I believe in Jesus. So that's why I left the modern day church. And I subscribe to Messianic Judaism, which, which means that I try to follow the traditions and adhere to the law while still understanding that there is grace for me if I do make mistakes or if I do mess up, but there's always going to be consequences. J just because you, you say that you're sorry and you get some kind of grace or forgiveness doesn't mean that you're absolved from any sort of punishment whatsoever. And modern day Christianity doesn't preach that. So the last thing that I'll say on this, and I'll let you chime in, is that I do think that monotheism or the belief in a single point of divinity and creation and power in which all life came from, just merely believing in that concept is very powerful in humbling us and staying at a certain level to where we don't let our egos get so big to where we start seeing ourselves as gods among men, which can lead to all kinds of dangerous narcissism. I agree when you said uh, that Jesus can't be used as a get out of jail card. It's not important to merely be religious, but also it's important to be a good human being. One event that dented Judeo-Christian values in the West was the pedophilia scandal in the Catholic Church. A lot of Catholic priests abused children. And uh, while they were talking, while they were preaching about God and moral values, they were also abusing children. And that had a huge dent on religion in the West. And a lot of young people in the West left the church and they went in the direction of atheism or agnosticism. So it's not just the fault of atheists. It's also the fault of these religious people for paving the way for youngsters leaving the church. I hate to agree with you, but it's true. Um, Christians are some of the worst advocates for Christianity. And I always tell people, and it's not just Christianity, it's anything. If you're a Republican or, or you know, you're a Democrat, you don't win hearts and minds into your camp by pointing fingers and doing this. Sometimes that works, but the best way to promote a product is to live out its results. You know, so the Bible says in, you know, the book of John, um, you know, several other places 
you will you will know them by their fruits. And what that means is, is that if something is producing fruit or it's producing value, then there must be something good behind that, right? So if you're looking at these people and, and they're claiming that this product is really good, like, oh, you know, come here, join us, but you're seeing all this hypocrisy and 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 you're seeing like what you said in the Catholic Church, you know, pedophilia and all these things. People say, I, I don't want to join that. Same thing with, with Democrats. You know, back in the 1990s, I mean, I was pretty young, but I identified with Democrats. I was like, yeah, you know, they're compassionate, but they still had patriotism. They they still had some common sense about family and, and gender and all these kind of things. They still had this baseline of common sense, but they just wanted to help poor people and, well, supposedly, and be anti-war. But once you lose that baseline, you can go in any kind of direction. So whatever it is that you're preaching and doing, just like working out, for example, if, if I were to try to sell you a book and I said, hey, read this book, it'll get you in the best shape ever, but I'm, but I'm overweight. <laughs> and, and you're going to say, who wrote the book? Well, I wrote the book. You wrote a book about losing weight, but you're overweight. I don't, I don't trust your book. So the last thing that I'll say is that I don't expect anyone to be perfect. I can be a hypocrite sometimes, and I'm definitely a sinner, but I actively and full-heartedly pursue what I believe in, and I, I get uncomfortable with myself, and I make sacrifices, and, and people can see that, and they say, hey, you know, you may not be perfect, but like right now, I'm drinking a little bit of wine. It's a very small glass. And I don't plan to have any more. That's called discipline. But if I was drunk and drooling on myself and I'm talking about the Bible, you're not going to take me seriously. So whatever it is that you're advocating for, just remember, it's not just about what is factually correct. But in order to gain followers, you have to be living out your truth, not just speaking it. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, gender is a very funny thing because gender used to be absolute just a few years ago. We knew that there are two genders, man, woman, boy, girl. But people have become so disillusioned with gender. I want to talk to you about this uh, funny story. that It's a true story that happened in Canada a few years ago. There's this gentleman called uh, Robert Hoogland and he had a 14-year-old uh, daughter. And she, this, I'm sorry, say that again, that Dr. Hogan had a 14-year-old what? Uh, there was a man called Robert Hoogland. Okay, and he okay. had a 14-year-old daughter. Okay, and okay. This, daughter. All right, and this daughter started uh, identifying as a boy. And uh, this father continued to refer to her as his daughter and not as his son. And uh, he got arrested for that in Canada. And the Canadian court said, if you don't stop misgendering your daughter, you need to start calling her or him as your son. And if you don't do that, we're going to put you in jail. That to me sounds insane. To me, when I hear stories like that, I think the Western civilization is collapsing where fathers are forced to look at their daughters and say that, hey, 
I'm going to call you my son because you identify as a boy now. And they're giving hormones to young children. <laughs> what is happening in the West? It's also confusing. They took something absolute like gender and they just wrecked it. I can, I can diagnose this problem and dissect it for you perfectly. Why transgenderism is so popular now? I, I can give you the answers to all of it. Um, but, but yes, it, it is a problem. In many jurisdictions in the United States, if you're, if you're underage child, under the age of 18, if they want to get a sex change operation and you say no, in some jurisdictions, the government can actually take your child away from you and accuse you of child abuse because you don't recognize their perceived gender. And there are all kinds of cases of people who got sex change operations whenever they were, you know, 17, 18, 19. And then by the time that they were 30, they actually regretted it. And they realized like, oh, it was just a phase that I was going through. You know, I remember growing up, I actually have a twin sister. Her name's Stephanie. You know, if she's listening to this, I love you, Stephanie. You know, she's awesome. I love my sister. But growing up, she was very fond of my father. She was very close to him. And she still is. But especially when she was little, she was daddy's little girl. And she used to always joke around and say, when I grow up, I want to, you know, marry my dad. You know, she would say things like that. And we would just laugh it off. And because she was just a little kid, you know, she's like four years old. And we just think that it's cute. And my dad was also a carpenter. And he still is to this day. He, he's a genius and an artist when it comes to laying carpet or doing any sort of flooring. I mean, he's a master at it. And she used to tell people, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a boy. And I want to lay carpet just like my dad. She's five years old saying this. Now, by the time that she was, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, we would remind her of these things and her face would turn red and she would say, ah, oh, it's so embarrassing. I was just a kid. But I think about those moments and when kids say things like that now, parents are taking it seriously. I'm like, what? You know, you're five years old and you, and you say that you want to be a boy when you grow up. We'll take you to the doctor first thing in the morning. And it's like, come on, it, it's a child. There's actually this curriculum, you should look it up. It's called uh, SOGI. It's, uh, it's an acronym. I can't remember what the acronym stands for now. It's something about gender fluidity, but it's a curriculum that they're actually testing and they're putting it into schools. And they're teaching these five, six, seven-year-old kids that, you know, hey, if you feel like a girl, then maybe you are and teaching them this, these, these concepts. And they don't need to be introduced to these concepts. When I was five years old, my biggest worries was if another kid was going to take one of my toys, you know, and we shouldn't be pushing these sort of things onto children. And then now on top of that, we gotten away from God, right? And divorce rates are skyrocketing. You know, we have no-fault divorce. Back in the day, if you wanted to get divorced, you had to go to a judge and attend all of these counseling sessions, and you had to convince a judge that your marriage was unsavable. But now to get a divorce, it costs like $500. You're in and you're out. And 80, I think 82% of the time, women get custody of the children. 
and the fathers have to pay child support, alimony, all these things. They're so busy working that they don't have time to be in their child's life. And if the woman alienates the child away and the man doesn't have money to hire a lawyer and fight for parental rights, within a couple of years, he may even lose contract, uh, contact in a relationship with his children. So we've had two generations of massive divorce spikes. And right now in the United States, uh, I think it's like only one in four children are growing up with a full-time father in their life. So kids are being feminized. And there's no masculine energy in the household anymore. And that's why you're, you're seeing, especially like these young boys, you know, coming up and they have no masculine influence. And in many ways, they're being taught that masculinity is this bad thing. It's this evil thing that, that everything about masculinity is toxic. Well, let me tell you something. For millions of years, testosterone and the fact that we have denser bones and, and generally at least 15% more muscle mass than women, all that was used to protect our pregnant mates from wild animals and other tribes to protect them physically. So masculinity and testosterone is the, is, is the embodiment of protection and being strong, whereas the woman was supposed to be the nurturer of the family. But we don't have these clear roles anymore. And if we live in a society where we don't even know if we're male or female, how are we going to figure out healthcare? How are we going to figure out foreign policy? How are we going to figure out taxes if we're confused about who we are? We can't solve all that other stuff. Now, I will say one final thing, because I do have a tendency to rant and ramble, and I apologize. It's very difficult for me to say, but until we can get the family back together, because that, that is the root of what makes a nation and a society, until we can fix the family, I would say that health healthcare, foreign policy, wars, taxes, all that stuff's pretty much meaningless because once the family unit dissolves, you don't have a society anymore. And, and one more quick side note is that if someone is transgender or they're gay or they're lesbian, you know, whatever, and you're an adult, you're over the age of 18, live your lifestyle. No one's advocating to, to harm you or put you in jail or anything like that, but there's a difference between being tolerant and then full-blown advocacy. We actually have a cartoon on Cartoon Network right now that's airing. You can look it up on YouTube, type in Cartoon Network, let's get married. And, it, and it's two boys in this cartoon and they're playing and they start holding hands and they say, when we get older, let's get married. Are those two boys gonna grow up to have children? to bring more people into our society and grow it? I mean, I, I don't know, will it? But it leads to all kinds of questions. And it's not a message of hate. It's not a message of let's go attack these people, but we have to recognize that there's consequences to society for accepting or including any sort of behavior, much less legalizing it and codifying it into that society and, and we're dealing with the ramifications of that. We've moved from let's be tolerant 
to let's flat out say that it's a wonderful thing that we should celebrate and actually encourage children to partake in. And to me, there's actually a case right now where there's a father who's in a divorce case and he's fighting for the right to not get a sex change operation on his eight-year-old son. The mother wants to turn the son into a daughter and the father wants to keep the son as a son and he's only eight years old and it looks like he's going to lose. That, that's child abuse. But the father's being called a homophobe and a racist and all these things. And he said, no, I just want my son to remain as a son. And once he turns 18, he can do whatever he wants and whatever he decides to do, I'm going to love him and accept him. But right now, he doesn't need to think about this and he needs to be a boy, be, be as he is. But children are like sponges. Whatever we say, they absorb it because they don't know who they fully are. So let me be quiet for a moment. I'm, I'm starting to rant and th this kind of stuff just really festers in my mind. Like, yeah. It's completely understandable. I, it makes me angry too to know that children are being indoctrinated into something so dangerous. It's being forced into their minds through television, through, uh, through music. And music today is trash. <laughs> music is indoctrination and so is movies and so are the TV shows, so are the curriculum. Schools used to be education centers. Today, they're just brainwashing centers. Colleges are, colleges are the last place where you can have a, an open debate anymore. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. And it's almost like there's a plot to destroy the United States by destroying children, by destroying families, by indoctrinating them. But I think I think we've spoken enough about this. Let me uh, move to another topic. Can you tell me the okay. story of uh, yeah? Can you tell me the story of your near-death experience where someone shot at you? Well, um, I actually gave a sermon at a church last night for the first time, uh, speaking about this. I actually want to show you something here. Give me one quick moment. So I have a prop. I'm going to talk about this in just a second. But yeah, so like I said earlier, I grew up in the church. I had always believed in God. And then up until I was about, I don't know, 25, I was a pretty religious guy. And I had always been involved in martial arts since childhood. I lived a very disciplined life, waking up early, running. I didn't smoke cigarettes or drink or, or do anything that I felt could sort of damage my body or make me un an unclean person. But I ended up injuring my, sh my, my shoulder very lightly. You know, it wasn't anything serious, no surgery or nothing like that. But I couldn't practice martial arts for a couple of months because it was really sore. And then I took a break from my disciplined sort of monk lifestyle. And I started hanging out with friends and partying a little bit. And I got kind of a taste for it. But then, you know, I came back to my disciplined lifestyle and I was young and I was like, wow, you know, this is kind of boring. All of my friends are doing all this wild stuff. I should be doing that, right? So by the time that I was 27, I was just, I went crazy, you know, 
sowing my wild oats, uh, traveling different places, going to nightclubs and just living that whole crazy life. But somewhere in the back of my mind, my teachings were sort of always there, sort of talking to me saying, hey, you know, th this is not good the way you're living. It's kind of unhealthy. And, and I would just ignore it because I was having so much fun. But then a little over about, well, it's been almost exactly a year now. I went out with a friend, you know, drinking and, and partying. And we went to a restaurant and got something to eat, some food. And it started getting late. And I said, hey, I have to walk back to my car. I got to wake up early in the morning and go work or whatever. So I start walking back to my car. And there was these group of guys holding Bibles. And they had this sign that was behind them. And there was like a crowd of people. And I couldn't see what they were saying. So I walked closer. And they belonged to this group called the Black Hebrew Israelites. And they believed that if you're white, if you're Asian, if you're Indian, Basically, if you're not an African-American um, or a Native American, but basically, if you don't belong to these one or two racial subcategories, then you're not going into heaven and you're going to be their slave in the afterlife. And I was like, this doesn't sound right. And surprisingly, the crowd was on their side. And I was very offended by this. And I actually had a friend that was with me. And, and I was like, what do you think about this? And he said, man, just let it go. I was like, no, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I hate bullies. And I said, no, someone's got to do something about this. Like, like, this is not right. So I walk up and I say, hey, I'm, I'm a white guy. You're telling me that I'm going to hell because of my skin color. And he was like, yes, you know, you're an Edomite from the book of Obadiah and all these prophecies. And he was trying to convince me that I was a part of this, you know, evil tribe and all these things. So we're trading Bible verses, and they keep saying that they're good people. And I remember from the book of Mark, chapter 10, um, Jesus says, no man is good but God. And I said this to them. I said, I said you're, you're good people? And I pointed my finger, and I said, no man is good but God. And as soon as I finished that statement, a gunshot went off. Someone in the crowd was angry. You know, they were fighting with someone. And the bullet went off. And the first bullet that went off, it, it scraped the back of my head. And that same bullet hit the sign that they were holding. It had all this writing about it, about, you know, certain races can get into heaven. And the bullet actually went through their sign and put a hole in it. But whenever the bullet scraped the back of my head, I just felt like this sort of intense pressure, this intense burning. And I kind of just instinctively grabbed my head and sort of, you know, bent down, bent over. But then several more gunshots rang out. And it was eight people in total, including me, that got hit. And the seven other people that got hit, they were seriously injured. Nobody died, but they were seriously injured. They had to go to the hospital. But as I looked at my head and the police showed up and, and I didn't know how bad it was because whenever I looked at the blood, I saw blood on my hand, but I don't have eyes in the back of my head. So I didn't know how bad it was. And my hair was a little bit longer in the back. 
But once the police got there and they cleaned up my head, they washed it off and they said, oh, you're so lucky. You're a walking miracle. It's just a small cut. You don't even need stitches. But I actually skimmed over one part. Something else that hurt me, too, was when I was arguing with these guys, my friend who was with me, he was actually a black guy, you know, like them. And I thought that he was going to back me up because we'd been friends for so long. And they asked him, they said, you're friends with him? Do you think that he's going to go to heaven, that white guy? And I looked at him thinking that he was going to defend me. And he said, uh, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. And I was really shocked. And then he looks at me and he says, hey, I got to go take a phone call. And he walks away and, and he left me there by myself. If you know anything about Christianity, it sort of reminded me of the disciple Peter. Whenever Jesus was, was being arrested, people recognized his disciple Peter and said, wait, aren't you Jesus's disciple? And Peter looked at Jesus and said, oh, I don't know him. He denied him in front of that crowd to spare his own life. So I think that my friend didn't want to look bad in front of these guys. And yeah, and that friendship, even to this day, even though I forgive him, and if I see him, I'm going to shake his hand and say, hey, you know, what's going on? But our friendship was, was deeply, deeply damaged uh, after that experience. But, but anyways, after it was all said and done, the next day, I was very angry. I come from a boxing family. I had that fighting spirit. I wanted to go track this, this guy down because I saw on the news, they released the guy's name. His name was Alan Crump. I wanted to find out where this guy lived. I, I wanted to fight him. <laughs> I was like, you almost took me out of this world. You almost took my life. But then I was laying in my bed and I looked over to the left and I saw my grandfather's old Bible who is now deceased and he was killed by gun violence. Someone shot him in this stupid altercation too before I was born. But, and this Bible actually survived a fire. I mean, this, this Bible has all kinds of energy on it, I'm telling you. But I was just bored one night and I started flipping through and just reading it. And I saw these verses about forgiveness and how that, you know, we're all sinners and all these kind of things. And I started thinking about my own life. I've been living a sinful life, this undisciplined life, and, and I've made my family and my parents disappointed because I wasn't really taking my career seriously and different things. And I come from an investigative background. So even though I'm a paralegal, I also work in private investigations. So I go on Google and I start researching this guy and I find his Facebook profile and I find him and come to find out he's only 21 years old. He's young. I start scrolling through his his Facebook profile, and he looks like a, a pretty decent guy. He has a beautiful girlfriend. He's graduated from college, and I was like, wow, this doesn't seem like a guy who would shoot some people, but then I scroll down some more, and I see this Facebook post that says something about, I miss my father. I wish that he didn't die, something like that, and then all of his posts after that were very negative, and I was like, oh. His father died, and that affected him in such a negative way that his life went down this other path. Maybe there's still hope for him. So after a lot of praying and just thinking and meditating, 
I decided to forgive him and drop my charges against him. And I wrote this letter to the DA's office and I said, if he agrees to study the Bible with me at least twice a week, I'll drop the charges against him. So I submitted that letter and the district attorney's office said, hey, if you testify, we'll give you this uh, victim's compensation fund. And I almost thought about taking it because I didn't have any, uh, well, I don't want to say I didn't have any money, but I was kind of financially struggling in that time. And I thought about taking the money, but then I was like, no, you know what? This is bigger than me because my life has been affected and I want his life to be affected. So I, I, I turned down that money and I said, I don't need any compensation. I just want lives to be changed. So I stood by my letter and I refused to testify against him and I dropped my charges. Now, the other victims, I think there was one other victim that dropped their charges as well. I don't know why, I don't know their reason, but the other six victims, they, they pressed their charges and, and he's facing jail time. I don't know when he's gonna get out. Um, and, and that's fine because that, that's their decision. I'm not shaming the other victims, you know, and I'm not advocating that they forgive or, or drop their charges. That's their own personal spiritual journey. But for me personally, this was the right decision for me. And I, I truly feel that by me forgiving him and offering him this gift to drop the charges, I sent him a powerful message that there's good people in the world that care about you and redemption is possible. And he's young enough to make that redemption happen because once he comes out of prison, the chances are that he's going to come out as a meaner person because prison is a mean place. But maybe my message soften his heart just enough to where he can come out and be a productive member of society. That's my hope. But if it doesn't work, then I still believe that I've gained some kind of favor with God. And, it, and it's been a healing and transformative process for me. And that matters too. That's fascinating, man. I'm, and I'm glad uh, you're still okay because... <laughs> <laughs> because you would have lost someone as important as you and to see that you have gone through so much and to see that you are shaping your um, trauma in a positive way because this I imagine this is a very traumatic experience and I want to take you back to that um, to, to that praise that you had earlier spoken mm. about post-traumatic growth syndrome how has this trauma helped you to grow? Well, I am an author. I've written many books. So e even about my near-death experience, I made a very small, it's only 20 pages long. It's called Removing the Sting of Death. It's on Google Play. It's only five bucks. But if you don't have any money, I don't care about the money. Just email me. I'll give you a copy for free. But post-traumatic growth syndrome is a phrase that I came across while I was writing my previous book, because this is my latest title, but the book that I wrote before that was before this incident happened. So before I got shot, this is in 2020. So during COVID, all these things, I was sort of semi-homeless. And this is very embarrassing to talk about, but, but I'm going to say it because it might help some people. So in 2020, during the pandemic, my life turned into a mess. Um, I don't want to go into all the details, but some things happened that affected me very deeply financially and emotionally. Um, 
I had a friend that died in the hospital. I mean, 2020 was one of the probably the hardest year of my life. If not the hardest, it's up there in the top three. But before I got shot, I wrote another book called The Ninja Mindset. So in 2020, my heart had gotten so hard because I'd been betrayed. I had, you know, I, I had been in all these romantic relationships that didn't work out. I had financial troubles. My heart had gotten so hard to where I got this mindset of, you know what, whatever it takes to, to survive, that's all that matters. And I wrote a book called The Ninja Mindset, and it's all about protecting yourself physically, mentally, financially, legally from other people. Because I started to see people as the enemy, in a sense, that human nature itself cannot be trusted. And I just wrote this book about all the ways you can protect yourself from being hurt by other people. And But towards the end of writing that, that title, I was starting to come out of this period of temporary homelessness. And I started to feel a little bit more hopeful. And I discovered this phrase called post-traumatic growth syndrome. It's the opposite of post-traumatic stress syndrome. But according to these different studies, approximately 13% of people who undergo, undergo a traumatic experience, whether it's getting into a car wreck or walking in on a spouse, having sex with someone else, like all these traumatic things, approximately 13% of people actually become stronger on the other side of that experience afterwards. Their neural pathways, you know, grow denser and stronger emotionally. They become more secured, all these kind of things. And I became very obsessed with this principle. And I became obsessed with the fact of what makes these 13% of people who experience post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress? What is the difference between these 13% of people and these other, you know, 87% of people? What's the difference between the two? And what I discovered doing my own research and, and reading other people's uh, work and listening to lectures, just going through this journey, I discovered and this is not based on any kind of science. This is just my opinion. But I think it comes down to self-authoring. And this is a phrase that I think Jordan Peterson likes to use too. But self-authoring is where you take this experience, okay? Let's say that it's a breakup with a girlfriend, right? Your girlfriend calls you up and she says, hey, you know, this isn't working. I'm breaking up with you. It's over. Our immediate reaction is to say, I'm a good person and how dare they do this to me? You know, I don't deserve this. And, and why are these bad things happening to me? But someone who does self-authoring, they take the experience and they bend it in a way to where it benefits them. Like, oh, my girlfriend just broke up with me. Well, I have been thinking about taking some college courses. And because I was dating I was spending all this time going to dinners and doing all these activities with her. I have more free time. Now I can go back to college. That's self-authoring or even me getting shot in the back of the head. Hey, that bullet was God talking to me saying, hey, 
wake up. You need to stop living this kind of sinful lifestyle and get serious about your life and be disciplined. Oh, it, it actually wasn't a negative thing. It was a positive thing that happened to me. Whereas most people, they would self-author the situation as, oh, that bullet, it scraped the back of my head. The world's out to get me. Everybody hates me. The world's trying to kill me. Oh, I'm so sad. Let me become an alcoholic. Let me do drugs. Let me do anything to forget this pain. So self-authoring leads to post-traumatic growth. And that leads to me being on this podcast right now. This is evidence of that growth. So my quote unquote product works. And the evidence is that I'm sitting right here healthy, somewhat happy. You know, what is happiness? But pretty much secure and able to talk to you right now with a smile on my face, despite these horrible things happening to me glad that you could turn something so ugly into something that's beautiful it's like the lotus metaphor a lotus can grow even in a gutter so you turn something so ugly into something that's productive and beautiful when you went through that near-death experience did you think of the afterlife not initially no what i thought about after i got shot of course, after the adrenaline wore off and, and the police officer that showed up on, on the scene, she took me home. And then once I got home and I calmed down, the first things that came to my mind was about all of my relationships with the people closest to me. I thought about my brother, my mother. I thought about friends. I, I thought about ex-girlfriends that I had dated. I just started analyzing all my relationships and I realized that some of the people in my life that I was angry at, I was only okay being angry with them because I thought, well, in the future, I'll fix those relationships. But it was in that moment that I realized that a future is not necessarily guaranteed and whatever peace that you're searching for you have to choose it right now and today. Even if you don't get to make amends with those people, you have to forgive yourself and you have to come to the thing that connects all of us in this interdimensional web of consciousness, which is God. So even though there have been some people in my life, in my past that, I, that I've hurt emotionally, and maybe I don't have the opportunity to communicate with them anymore, because I believe in God, I can pray to that God to reach that person, almost like a middleman. And then that brings me a, a form of self-forgiveness and self-reflection. And to honor those people, I can make a promise to myself that never again will I pass on my sins and my pain to new people that come into my life. And I won't let those people that I hurt in my past be for vain. Anything that happens to you negatively in your life, you can self-author it into a positive situation as long as you say it wasn't in vain. And the way that you do that is you take that negative thing and you twist it in such a way to where it becomes a motivator of growth. So after I got shot, 
the first thing that I thought about was all the people that I hurt, how much of a hypocrite I had been, and how much I didn't want to pass suffering on to other people. And I wanted to make amends as much as I could because tomorrow is not promised. And don't just stop putting things off. Stop putting things off and be urgent in your goals. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a very important message. And one of the way that you have dealt with bullies in the past is by learning martial arts. What, uh, what kind, would you say that more young men and women need to learn martial arts? Well, aside from God and religion and those kind of foundations in my life, next to that, the most important thing or the most foundational thing in my life has been martial arts. And, and I, I include boxing. You know, I think boxing is a martial art. A lot of people think that martial arts is just things that come from Asia. No, any combative system that, that comes with any sort of discipline or moral principles behind it that are given to you by a coach or, or an instructor, it's a martial art. But yes, mar martial arts has been foundational in my life. Without it, I wouldn't be here right now. I wouldn't be the man that I am. It, it, it has been so important for me, especially as a child of divorce. My parents divorced when I was about 13, and it, it affected my father really bad, you know, because he didn't really want the divorce. My mom pursued it more. And I won't go into all the details because I want to protect their privacy. But my dad took it really hard. He, he kind of drank a little bit, you know, more than he should have. But his life kind of fell off for a couple of years. And we got very distant for about 10 years. He, he wasn't really a part of my life that much. And I was desperate for some sort of masculine influence. And, and even though my older brother, I grew up watching him do martial arts. I didn't get into it until I was like around 12, but after my parents divorced, that, that was my safe place to where I could escape reality and I was around other strong men. Because in martial arts, it's not like other team sports where it's, you know, you can sort of rely on someone else to do the work for you. In martial arts, it's you and one other person. And martial arts teaches you to handle victory and defeat personally on a one-on-one -on -one situation because there's nothing more personal than getting punched in the face by somebody and you have to learn to accept that defeat no matter how good you think you are somebody can knock you out and dominate you physically and that's a very humbling experience and we live in such a weak sort of self-entitled society now that I think all of us should at least get knocked out by somebody at least at least once in your life. Everyone should get their ass kicked to show them that there's always somebody out there that is smarter than you, that is ha more handsome than you, that has more money than you, and someone that's physically stronger and can kick your ass. And that humbles you enough to make you realize I need to stay on my game and I need to be constantly improving. and I need to never get complacent. So martial arts will humble you and it, and it disciplines you because in order to be good at martial arts, if, if you're not disciplined in martial arts, it can mean the difference between life and death. If you're a
opponent is a, in a little bit better shape than you, if he's a little bit stronger than you, maybe he's been practicing a little bit more than you, it can mean the difference between moving out of the way of a punch or getting hit. Whereas in basketball, if you don't practice, oh, I missed the shot, big deal. But in martial arts, if you don't keep up with your training, it can mean getting knocked out. So the consequences are serious. So in martial arts, discipline is, is critical. And we live in a society that is so undisciplined now where everyone's just kind of chasing pleasure and they're not thinking about, okay, if I sacrifice today, it can help me tomorrow. And that is the basis of martial arts is to be disciplined and to, and to sweat today, or, or actually, let me take you back. Are, are you familiar with the, uh, the Shaolin Temple? Not very familiar. I'm not very familiar. Well, the, the, the Shaolin Temple, the, the, the monks that shave their head in China. Yeah, I'm familiar they with practice them. martial arts. Well, there's this quote, at least that was always taught to me by my teacher. I don't know if it actually comes from the Shaolin Temple, but, but he was my, my, my shifu or in Chinese, you know, teacher, because Kung Fu or Chinese martial arts was my, my first martial art or combat system. I later moved into boxing and wrestling and all kinds of other martial arts. But he used to always tell me, he said, there's an old saying that comes from the, the Shaolin Temple. The more you sweat, the less you bleed. Meaning, the harder you work, the less likely you are to fail. And I learned so many things in martial arts about discipline, about accepting defeat, and, and just so many humbling experiences that, that next to God, the lessons that I've learned in martial arts, I've carried it into every struggle in my life. And, and yes, everyone, I'm not saying that you have to devote your whole life to it, but every, learning how to defend yourself is a basic life skill on par with brushing your teeth. That's just my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we've become very weak, especially our uh, younger generation. We've become so dependent. I think it's about time that we pull up our act together and learn martial arts or some kind of sports and get get fit. Because so many of us today are getting so obese. Obesity is the, <laughs> obesity is the new norm. People are so overweight. And we saw during the COVID pandemic as well, a lot of people getting hospitalized and most people who were dying from COVID were also obese. It's almost like they don't want to take responsibility for their own body. I tell them, like, you know, rather than outsourcing your responsibility to the government or some pharmaceutical company, why didn't you lose some weight? People seem to have lost touch with self-responsibility. So um, finally, I want to ask, uh, what do you think is the purpose of life? Do you, well, I'm going to, I think for you and for any listeners, I think I'm going to have to give them two separate answers from two different realms. If you're asking me as a religious person, I think that the purpose of life is that we're born here into these physical bodies that house our spirits to basically spend a certain amount of time for some people it's just a few minutes as newborn children for some people it's it's many years but i think that we're born into these bodies to refine our spirits 
and to prepare uh, those same spirits to, to meet God. Everything that we're doing in this life is in preparation uh, to meet God. Now, if you're asking me from a secular perspective, well, going back to my first, my, my first answer, I want to add a little bit more to that, is that no matter what you achieve in this life, a college degree, um, you know, money, fame, all these kind of things, you're going to have to say goodbye to it in the end. Read the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Everything that we're, that we're doing in this life is essentially meaningless. 50 years from now, or if I was to die tonight, because it's nighttime where I'm at, if I were to die tonight, a year from now, especially 10 years from now, I highly doubt that anyone's going to be talking about me. If I'm very lucky, maybe one of my works gets discovered and I become famous, but maybe people mention me here and there, but, but no one's really going to really deeply care about me, especially 100 years into the future. So for me, my most important thing is being on the right page with, with my idea of, of my creator and doing everything that I can to, to glorify him as a product of, of his creation. Because I really do think that with all the war and all the, the ugly negative, thing, negative things in the world, I look at a flower or a waterfall, and this world is still such an amazingly beautiful place. The fact that I'm talking to you on, on a cell phone thousands of miles away from each other, I mean, this is nothing short of a miracle. What we're doing right here, right now, that there's, there's 8 billion people on earth that somehow you and I met and we're talking, that just blows my mind. So the purpose of life is to refine your spirit and to get ready to meet God. Now, for all the atheists out there or the secular people, if we get God out of the way, which is very difficult for me to do, but I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to try. The purpose of life is to make a purpose out of life. I don't believe in nihilism. I think that nihilism is a toxic philosophy, which basically leads to self-defeat. Even if it's true, let's pretend that there is no God, that there is no morality, there is no meaning to life. It's all inherently meaningless. We, you know, we die and, and that's just it. None of this matters. It's all artificial, made up. How is that helping you survive? How is that mindset helping you go into tomorrow safely. So the purpose of your life outside of God is to create a purpose for yourself. After you die, even if there is no God, no afterlife, you're leaving behind a name and something to be attached to that name. And after you die, you can't defend your name anymore. Other people are going to be talking about that name and if you care about yourself and your legacy, you want to leave behind as many positive things attached to that name as humanly possible so that after you're, you're, you're dead and gone, your name, your namesake, and your family, and any sort of quote-unquote karma that is attached to your life will reap nothing but positive uh, and fruitful things for society at large. 
And if you don't care about those things, then I say that you're either a psychopath or you're just so, so depressed that you're suicidal and you don't care. And if you are that kind of person, then please reach out to me because I don't want you to kill yourself. And I'm glad that you are here. There are people that have no arms and no legs and they're still finding ways to create a purpose for themselves. So if you're one of those people who is desperate and you can't find a purpose for your life, then your purpose is to reach out to me to help you find your purpose. Absolutely, man. Yeah, it's very difficult to live a life with no purpose or meaning. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Yes, that was quite the labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> okay.